Hey, Proof listeners, this is Dan Souza. You might know me as the resident food science nerd on America's Test Kitchen on public television. Everything we do at ATK is about helping people become better cooks. And one of the reasons I love my job is because I truly believe in our content. Everyone who works here is obsessed with the why behind food. We test and retest every variable until we understand why leaving some bubbles in the batter makes for fluffier pancakes, or why turning off the oven halfway through cooking is the key to perfectly roasted chicken. If you're a curious food lover, and I assume you are because you're listening to Proof, please consider supporting our work by subscribing to an ATK digital membership. You'll get access to our archive of great recipes, recommendations on the best kitchen gear, and so much more. We'd love to give you a 14-day test run. Just go to atkpodcast.com and sign up. As we're recording this, I'm in the midst of finishing up a cookbook with America's Test Kitchen. It's a Chinese cookbook that I'm co-authoring with my dad. Comes out October 2023. Super excited. And one of the things I write about in the cookbook is how I've come to terms and come to really love American Chinese food. I'm talking about crab rangoon, orange chicken, Mongolian beef. You know, it's really fusion food. It's Chinese cooking through the filter of American dining habits. And it's not the Chinese food my family grew up eating. So we kind of poo-pooed that type of food. It wasn't, and I'm using air quotes now, authentic. But here's the deal. The more I learned about American Chinese food, the more I was able to appreciate it as its own genre. It's not in competition with the Cantonese food I grew up eating. But I believe that both can exist under the Chinese culinary umbrella. Cooking is a living, breathing, evolving organism. It travels from one host to another and becomes something else entirely. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, we're exploring two stories around the theme of fusion food. It stirs up different reactions in people, for sure. We'll travel to Jamaica by way of China to taste a beloved Jamaican dish, and then we'll head to Saigon for a sandwich that's distinctly Vietnamese and distinctly French. I'm Kevin Pang. Thanks for listening, and stick around. Ever get overwhelmed by all the different types of butter that are out there? I know the difference between salted and unsalted, but what about the ones that say 80% butterfat versus 82% butterfat? Does that 2% make a difference? I'm bringing in Cook's Illustrated Editor-in-Chief Dan Souza to explain. So it's a great question, and it actually does make a big difference. The butterfat can affect how rich, spreadable, or melty your butter is when you're cooking with it and spreading it on toast and bread and stuff like that. But it also plays a big role in baking as well, especially for something like croissants or any other laminated dessert. That higher butterfat content means that it actually ends up being more pliable. So you can roll it out more easily and get these really fine layers of dough and butter and get the flakiest results when it bakes up. Taste the difference with Plugra Premium Butter's 82% butterfat content. Visit Plugra.com for more information. Folks, I want you to meet Dion Reed. 
She's a recipe developer and the former chef owner of Smoked Marlin, a restaurant in Jamaica that's being converted into a bed and breakfast. She also created a recipe for our very own Cooks Illustrated. It's a dish that has a special place for Jamaicans, pepper steak. When I was in college, I always traveled from New York back home to Jamaica for the holiday season. The airports were never short of exciting, despite being utter madness. I always knew I was closer to home, even at the airport in New York, because as soon as I'd get to my gate, I'd be surrounded by Jamaicans of every ilk, bustling excitedly to return home, just like I was. One Christmas, I was boarding my plane home, me and a whole heap of other Jamaicans, ready to go home, the whole are we ready for go away yard. Impatience, high. No one was listening to the flight attendants. You could feel the eagerness to be transported just bubbling over. The line to get to my seat well tight, to the point where people just pushed them when another. Directly in front of me were three men, a black man, an Indian man, and a Chinese man. From their body language and how they were talking to each other, I could pick up two things. They're friends. And they were all Jamaican. As I start scanning the plane for my seat, me and this American lady, our eyes met. I start to smile to myself because I know what's about to happen. The Chinese gentleman in front of me started getting antsy. And then suddenly he exclaimed something in Jamaican patois. He was playfully jeering his friends. If you take up their self and go up in a derated plane. Make haste, in other words. The American lady, her eyes widened, completely shocked at the sounds that were coming from this man's mouth. I sometimes forget that most of the world is sold a particular image of Jamaica. It's the idyllic image of eating jerk beachside with the sweet sounds of reggae in the background, pina colada in hand. Maybe you imagine Sanka from Cool Runnings drinking some coconut water. And don't get me wrong, I get it. That beachy version of Jamaican paradise never gets old. But for those of us who know Jamaica as home, paradise is at the dinner table. Whether it be roast chicken, stew peas, curry goat or pepper steak. They are dishes teeming with flavor, and they boast Jamaica's racial diversity and culinary range. A major reason for that is our large and active Chinese community, whose impact can be seen throughout Jamaican culture. That last dish I mentioned, pepper steak, is a perfect example of the Chinese-Jamaican fusion that can be found on the island. It's a beef stir-fry made with sweet red, yellow, and green peppers pungent pimento, ginger, and black pepper, and a fiery scotch bonnet. The sauce, or gravy as Jamaicans call it, is rich and flavorful. It ties together the warm island spices with the umami-rich ingredients and cooking techniques of Chinese cuisine. But things may not be as straightforward as they seem. So let's get to the bottom of this. How did a Chinese-sounding pepper steak become a quintessential Jamaican dish? It's 1854, 
and the island is facing more and more competition as producers of sugar and rum enter the global market. Slavery has been abolished 16 years prior. Plantations are also taking a hit because they no longer have free labor. The solution? Seek out other royal subjects in the colonies. Hong Kong, at the time, was under British rule, just as Jamaica was. And plantation owners sought to outsource labor through indentureship. Meanwhile, China is experiencing their own waves of turbulence. Famine, opium wars, and political turmoil are leaving ordinary people with little choice but to seek out a better life for them and their families. The area of Guangdong is seeing men leave in droves, some by choice and some by trickery. The promise to all is simple. Labor in exchange for boarding, medical care, and food. History would eventually show how hollow this promise was. The Chinese indentured laborers were met with deplorable living and working conditions, as well as discrimination. Despite this, Chinese indentured laborers continued to buy into the promise of a better life. After all, it was nearly impossible for them to leave. By the end of 1884, there were about 5,000 Chinese who had emigrated to Jamaica. The first wave of Chinese to Jamaica came largely as indentured servants. And they came because the United Kingdom had abolished slavery and there was still a need on plantations to have cheap labor. Dr. Jennifer Ho is the director of the Center for Humanities and the Arts and a professor of ethnic studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And that's how you get both Indian and Chinese laborers into the Caribbean. While not a food historian, Dr. Ho has done extensive research on her own family's history. She's the daughter of a refugee father from China and an immigrant mother from Jamaica whose parents were from Hong Kong. Dr. Ho is working on a book called Three Continents, Five Countries, One Family, My Chinese Jamaican Family's Transnational and Transpacific Story. I would say my grandfather was part of a third wave. So that was like the first wave is in the mid-19th century, maybe mid to late 19th century. And then by the time my grandfather comes, he's part of a third wave of a mercantile class. As the 20th century approached, King Sugar and Rome were starting to get dethroned. Discrimination against Chinese Jamaicans persisted. Major anti-Chinese riots broke out in 1918, 1938, and 1965 over episodes of racial tensions and intolerance. But it was through commerce that members of the Chinese population were able to establish themselves as prominent members of Jamaican society. Many of the indentured Chinese laborers went on to open small shops where to this day, customers often refer to them as Misa Chin or Miss Chin. To those outside of Jamaican culture, this may sound reductive or offensive. But the Chinese being part of the mercantile class evokes respect. Many of these small shops continue to be anchors in communities, like bodegas are in New York City. So Misa Chin or Miss Chin is used in large part as an endearing term, a title of respect. Through agriculture, restaurants, and other small businesses, many Chinese went on to become prominent members of Jamaican society. 
The discrimination many of them face tapered as the Chinese married Jamaicans of other racial backgrounds. That helped to break down racial and cultural barriers. Today, the 5,000 that came to the island in 1884 has grown more than tenfold. In the early days of Chinese immigration to Jamaica, Chinese cooks adapted their traditional recipes to use local ingredients and spices. Dr. Ho speculates on how the Chinese carried their cuisine with them to their new island home. I'm thinking in the 19th century where there would have been so few to know Chinese women and what Chinese women there were would have been of the merchant class, most likely, rather than the indentured class. So my guess is that the Chinese men ate whatever they were able to eat, which would have been Jamaican food, and so then adapted to the tastes of Jamaican food. Jamaican food like brown stew, jerk, corn pork, and escovige. And then as there were waves of wives who came over or Chinese women who came over, my guess is that they would have adapted to the tastes of their husbands, which would have meant that they were eating Jamaican food. And then as ingredients from China became available, especially through British colonialism and imperialism, they would have then been adapting those ingredients into Jamaican cooking. With all this intermingling, it was inevitable that Chinese food with Jamaican ingredients would take on a life of its own. Eventually, a dish like Jamaican pepper steak was born. The fusion of Jamaican and Chinese cuisine gives pepper steak a distinctive and bold flavor. It has thin strips of beef, which is inspired by the Chinese. The flavorful marinade borrows from both cultures with its spicy black peppercorn. And that's a key ingredient in the marinade. Then, the Jamaican combo includes allspice, thyme, garlic and ginger. Soy sauce, Worcestershire sauce, vinegar and even oyster sauce are sometimes added to the marinade to give the beef a tangy umami taste. The steak is then stir-fried with onions, bell peppers, and other vegetables and served with fluffy steamed white rice or rice and peas. I have distinct memories of coming home to a warm plate of pepper steak and rice after a long day of school and exam prep. Those memories had such an effect on me. Yet, I wasn't sure which came first. The chicken or the egg? Is this a dish that uses Jamaican ingredients to cook Chinese food, or is it one that uses Chinese ingredients to cook Jamaican food? Dr. Ho seemed to indicate that it might not be that clear-cut, but I wanted to know, what forces brought this dish into existence? I put the question to some Jamaican Chinese folks in the food scene. As I sought to figure out the origin of this fusion dish, I decided to tap into my network of Chinese Jamaican paradigm. Friends of similar upbringing. I instantly thought of my childhood schoolmate, Robin. Robin Lee is a food content creator and self-professed Chinese food snob. We went to elementary school together and my father grew up on the same street as her mother did. Her father moved from Hong Kong to Jamaica where he fell in love with her Afro-Jamaican mother, Jennifer, and they had three children. Having grown up in a household that was both Chinese and Jamaican, 
I thought Robin would have tremendous insight into how to characterize the pepper steak. She noted that her pepper steak recipe was traditional Jamaican-esque. I want to say S because it's not straight Jamaican. What I consider our our version of a traditional pepper steak is well seasoned from the night before. It is seasoned with dry seasonings and fresh seasoning. It is, you know, left in the fridge overnight to kind of marinate, soak in the flavors of those dry and fresh seasonings. We eat these kinds of things for breakfast, but we are a heavy meal kind of culture. At night, we will serve it with rice white rice or rice and peas. Robin describes her understanding of the dish as Jamaican-esque, meaning mostly Jamaican with touches of Chinese influence. In her family, it is done as more of a braise, heavy on the warm spices of ginger and pimento, like you would do stew pork. They switched out the wok for the dochi, or the Dutch oven, and marinated the beef with scallions, scotch bonnets, and dried seasonings. It made sense to me, especially considering the many ways the Chinese are interwoven into Jamaican society. The integration into Jamaican society happened mostly organically, as it did with Robin's family, through marriage and commerce. Robin's father spent most of his week running his supermarket, but on Sundays, he cooked for his family. According to Robin, her dad is a man of few words. Chinese immigrants like her dad, Pak Kyung, or Victor as he's known, mostly spoke Cantonese. But he also learned to speak English and Jamaican Patois, which helped Victor and other immigrants communicate and connect with Jamaicans. My dad used food to communicate with us in a way Dad was able to teach us about his side of his culture and how he grew up and his upbringing and the flavors and the textures that he was able to enjoy and the things that he learned from his mom and his dad. And he brought them here to Jamaica. And he couldn't use his words to tell us about it because, one, none of us can talk Chinese. We just never learned. But... He turned those words, those feelings, and those emotions into cooking and preparing meals for each and every one of us. And I don't think there could be a more beautiful form of communication from a man that loves food and loves to cook as much as as he does. Robin's father's influence on how she cooks is immense, but her mother's influence is just as present. Robin says she now combines both her parents' approaches into her cooking. Probably within the past three years or so, I have shifted more towards wanting to know, learn, and understand Daddy and how he cooked, how he created the flavors that he created. But it's because I've been able to learn the complexity of the flavors over the past three years and understand how they can enhance certain meals, even if they are Jamaican-based meals. So it really has allowed me to kind of put everything all together and make these meals that mom used to make for me and dad used to make for me, put them together and just make them my own personally in my kitchen. Robin's musings made me inch closer and closer to thinking Jamaican-Chinese fusion food could really be Chinese cooks using familiar ingredients and techniques, 
to cook Jamaican food in the ways that felt most organic to them. Maybe it was just that simple. The necessity to assimilate to unfamiliar culture was made easier by using the familiar to adapt. Like many other immigrant communities, Chinese Jamaicans have been a part of the migration of the Jamaican middle class to North America and the United Kingdom. This migration began in the 1960s and 1970s. Jamaicans left for the same reasons their ancestors left China. The promise of better paying jobs, higher quality education, and more stable political and social environments. In the United States and Canada, Chinese Jamaicans have established their own communities, which often retain elements of their Jamaican and Chinese cultural heritage. One of those people is Craig Wong, the chef and owner of Patwa in Toronto, Canada. He was raised by Chinese Jamaican parents and his Chinese grandmother, whose influence is seen in every facet of his food today. His restaurant in Toronto reflects his diasporic third culture experience of living outside of Jamaica or China. I figured he must have a firm handle on the cuisine and would surely be able to help me solve my chicken or the egg dilemma. His take on the cuisine is steeped in nostalgia, which led me to wonder, could Chinese Jamaican food have simply been brought about by longing for home and comfort but having to be resourceful in making familiar foods by using the Jamaican ingredients available to them? I decided to look at Chef Wang's pepper steak to further explore this possibility. His version draws from Chinese tenderizing techniques. We chatted at his bodega, which had just opened next door to Patois. What I do is I take like a tougher piece of meat and yeah. and um, like that could be like a flank steak, something right, that's yeah. like less fatty. Right. And it's it's that whole idea of like Jamaican cows are not super marbled. They're not marbled like how we have here. Um, and it's it's a reflection of the climate, right? So the, the climate in Jamaica is nice and warm. They don't have the, the, the ability to gain that fat in a warm environment. I guess that's why all my relatives in Jamaica are skinnier as well too than us here. <laughs> but so yeah, we start off with like a less fatty cut, like a flank steak, slice it against the grain, and then we tenderize. And I love that technique because it's like the, the baking soda that reacts with the surface of the meat and it um, allows the surface to not uh, toughen up because it, it, it prevents the proteins from like joining together in such a strong bond. The touch he adds that feels Jamaican, though. Sometimes if I have a bit of cooking wine, like shaoxing or something, I'll put a little bit of that on there as well, too. And if I don't have any of that, I'll put some rum. It felt like for Chef Wang, pepper steak is more rooted in Chinese cuisine that happens to use Jamaican ingredients. But the more I learned about how he grew up seeing his grandmother cook, the less clear-cut it felt. My grandmother owned uh, two canteens. She owned a canteen on Orange Street, and she was doing a lot of like her own style dishes. So they wanted her to kind of stick to the basic Jamaican dishes, and they found that 
the more successful ones was when she would tie in a little bit of Chinese and she'd throw in a little bit of rice and, you know, chow up some of that beef, you know? And like, it was the most successful dishes when she started to put her spin on it. She's cooking Jamaican food with Chinese ingredients. And she's cooking Chinese dishes with Jamaican ingredients. And there was never that clear divide in my household. In my household, everything just went. And it's a resourcefulness, it's a creativity, and it's making do with what you have and making the best that you possibly can. And I think it's that hardworking immigrant mentality that was like thrust upon me when I was a kid. The further our conversation meandered, I got the haunting sense that my question had been futile all along. It almost doesn't matter whether it was the chicken or the egg that came first. And that should have never been my focus anyway. The focus should be on the celebration of dualities. That is the beauty of fusion cuisine. Like pepper steak, in its refusal to be one thing. Fusion speaks to the importance of representing all parts. Chef Wang even applies this ethos to his restaurant's philosophy. People love to feel comfortable and to categorize. And we don't fit into that tidy box. That was actually my business plan. <laughs> it was written to my business plan. We don't fit into a category, and I'm okay with that. And there's this thing called familiar difference. Mm-hmm. And familiar difference is, is like you catch somebody with the grounding of the dish where they understand it, but you change an aspect. You make something that it wasn't before. You make something very unique. But without that grounding, it just becomes a a dish that nobody connects with. So if I can touch somebody at their soul with something and change a little bit of something with it, and it can bring new memories to connections that they already had, Mm -hmm. that is a very successful um, moment. Food has been a way to connect with the most resonant parts of our identity. This longing to use food as a means of connecting to loved ones or to a sacred upbringing and heritage remains a driving force. With isolation from extended family, cravings for connection to Chinese heritage, it's inevitable that creation of new food would be a product of cross-cultural assimilation. I believe that it's in this effort to honor the past that the Chinese in Jamaica cook the food of home for their Jamaican children, passing on their values and educating them of their ancestry. This made my quest to determine whether it was the chicken or the egg that came first all the more comical. The more I stepped away from having to nail down a particular answer, the more I could appreciate the experiences that Dr. Ho, Robin and Chef Wang shared with me. They challenged me to look at fusion in a more honest way, not to overthink it. Robin showed how fusion shows up practically in a household with two cultures. We had one kitchen split in two. Mom inside of the kitchen, tiles are nice, cupboards are filled with, you know, the Jamaican essentials. Meanwhile, on daddy's side of the kitchen, it's literally a three burner. There are walks. Massive walks. Um, in his side of the kitchen, you find dried mushrooms, you find oyster sauce, you find soy sauce, you find star anise, five spice powder. It really differed and it really did show 
separation between cultures and where everything kind of came together was literally at the dinner table. Dr. Ho, on the other hand, stripped the entire premise down to its most sincere. So when you asked me to describe like the smells and the taste, to me, it feels comforting. I can tell you that it happened most recently when I was visiting my parents, that we still eat that way, where you have Jamaican food, you would have oxtail or stew peas alongside braised Chinese greens, chow mein, dim sum items. Yeah, I mean, that's how my family eats. It feels like not having to make a choice. It's a way that I feel love with my family. I get to be Chinese Jamaican without needing to explain a thing. Jamaican Chinese cuisine has become a beloved part of Jamaican food culture. Whether it's jerk pork fried rice or curry goat chow mein, it's about the acceptance of the duality and exploring new flavor combinations and techniques. Food is such a huge part of who we are as Jamaicans, just as much as our mixed heritages are. So much so that our country's motto reflects this very reality. Out of many, one people. It captures the national pride that pours out of each Jamaican. It's a graceful testament to the many corners of the world our ancestors are from and how they've intertwined to create this island nation with an incredible beef stir-fry. My hope is that the lady on our flight to Jamaica got that experience too. When we return, reporter Rebecca Rosman takes us to Saigon, where she takes a huge bite out of an iconic sandwich. Did you know you can help develop recipes for America's Test Kitchen? It's true. We have nearly 45,000 home testers who try out and give us feedback on new ATK recipes before they're published. Want to be part of the ATK family? Go to americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing. Once again, that's americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing to sign up. Our next story comes from reporter Rebecca Rosman. You last heard her on our episode called Will Jewish Deli Survive? This week, we found Rebecca in Vietnam, where she's on the hunt for one of the most delicious sandwiches ever created. I'm talking about, of course, the banh mi. All right, so I'm here in Saigon. It's hot. I'm hungry. But I'm also really sweaty and a little bit tired. And one of the most challenging things for me to do here is what I'm about to do now. Which anyone who's ever been to Saigon will know exactly what I'm about to say. It's crossing the street. It probably goes without saying, but I didn't travel all the way to Saigon to learn how to cross the street. I came here because Saigon is the birthplace of this one sandwich. You know, the, the main dish, you know, main food for the morning for noontime, even the nighttime. It has everything that you could want in a sandwich. I'm talking about 
the banh mi. The baguette sandwich layered with things like mayonnaise, pâté, pickled vegetables, different kinds of charcuterie, or maybe chicken or omelette. Then topped with cilantro, a flavor enhancer called maggi sauce, and if you like spice, fresh chili. It's packed with flavor, protein, and crunch. And thanks to the Vietnamese diaspora, banh mi has also gone global. Maybe you've tried one in your own neighborhood. Or maybe you've tasted banh mi from a street food vendor in Vietnam while sitting on one of those sidewalk stools, letting the crumbs fall where they may. Before I take you back to the streets of Saigon, let me tell you about how banh mi's became part of my steady rotation of breakfast and lunches. I work as a journalist in Paris, and one of my favorite banh mi shops is called Nanette Banh Mi. There's no seating. It's a simple takeaway stand with a salmon-colored awning. And the glass display case is filled with fresh pickled vegetables, cold cuts, and fresh herbs. Behind the main counter, there are stacks of fresh baguette waiting to be filled. The owner is a French-Vietnamese chef who, to me, represents the past, present, and future of banh mi. I'm Kenley Huynh, I'm from Paris, and I'm the chef and the co-owner of The Hood Paris and Nanette Banh Mi. Khan Lee is a first-generation Vietnamese Parisian who spent all of her life in France. Her parents moved from Vietnam to France in 1990, the year before Khan Lee was born. They settled in a town in the middle of France called Orléans. I grew up with my parents cooking a lot of Vietnamese food from the south of Vietnam because my dad uh, grew up uh, mostly in the south. So yeah, we grew up with pho, bún bò huế, bánh cuốn, and uh, bò kho, all these very classic uh, Vietnamese dishes. But Conley's favorite on-the-go meal was banh mi. It was something her family always took on road trips and an easy school lunch. The school lunch table is actually where Conley also discovered French food. Jambon beurre sandwiches, boiled fish with vegetables... Foods, she said, didn't quite hold up to her family's Vietnamese cooking. Everything outside Vietnamese food tasted kind of bland. And uh, because of the lack of fish sauce and because Vietnamese food is so complex, there's so much freshness, there's so many different layers of flavors that if you compare it to like a boiled um, fish with just carrots, the equivalent in Vietnam would have so much spices and herbs involved. Khan Lee grew to love cooking herself, and as she got older, trying out new recipes in the kitchen became a hobby. After graduating from university, she moved to Paris, where she got a job selling luxury watches at a boutique not too far from the Place Vendôme. But it wasn't her dream job. And I was so bored, and cooking was really growing more and taking more and more space in my life. Around that time, Conley had visited Vietnam for the first time ever since her family had left. While she was there, she was surprised to find a medley of different banh mi flavors. I had the first time a fish banh mi and a curry banh mi and a meatball banh mi I've never had before. There were thousands and thousands of recipes and I felt a bit cheated because I had no idea. I didn't know there were so many, and you could do whatever you wanted with it. So after my first trip, I kind of got interested into the banh mi and into the Vietnamese culture, and I dived really way more into it. Eventually, Conley put her passion for food to the test. In 2015, Conley landed a spot on a cooking show. Maybe you've heard of it, MasterChef. This was the French version. Maxime, Canly, and Philippe 
vont s'affronter pour décrocher le titre de Masterchef. She made it onto one of the first competitions that took place in the southern city of Marseille, famous for this fish soup called bouillabaisse. The contestants were asked to make their own version. I did a cancho, which is, has nothing to do with bouillabaisse. It's a fish soup with fish bones, pineapple, dill, it's sweet and sour, it's tamarind. It really has nothing to do with fish soup. The clock stops and the competition is over. Conley takes a step back and presents her soup to the judges. And I see those, those judges eating the soup with all the bones and everything, and I thought I would lose that. I was like, okay, you're going to go home? It's okay. At least you tried, and that's good. But then... Avec 39 points... C'est vous, Kenly. Bravo! She won. It gave me a bit of hope to go for Asian chef kind of situation. After winning the competition, Conley started getting offers to work in high-end French restaurants. But after a few trials, she realized that world wasn't for her. Because it was cold, because it was mean, it was hostile, it was everything they didn't like in terms of values. So she and a friend opened their own place. In 2016, Conley and her business partner Pearl opened The Hood, a cafe that specializes in cuisine from their combined Singaporean and Vietnamese roots. One of the first things she wanted to put on the menu was banh mi. Which sold out super fast at the restaurant. We were very amazed because I didn't know I could sell so much of it. I didn't know people would care having a banh mi. To be honest, I had no idea. The sandwich of her childhood, which she struggled to find a satisfying version of at any shops in the city, was now so popular that in 2021, she opened Nanette. It's a banh mi and donut stand right across from the hood. You can find more classic items, but also newer takes on banh mi, like a fried chicken version with sriracha mayonnaise, or French pork belly braised with caramelized ginger, garlic, and white pepper gravy. Even though it's one of the more non-traditional items, the fried chicken banh mi is amongst my favorites. The crispiness of the chicken gives the sandwich an added layer of crunchiness, and the homemade sriracha mayonnaise gives it the perfect kick. But getting people to understand her expression of her beloved banh mi hasn't always been easy. Conley told me the story about one of the first banh mi's she's ever had on the menu at her original cafe, The Hood. Which is... The egg banh mi, with the two sunny-side-up eggs and the magie. Which is this Swiss-invented flavor enhancer. And we were serving this for breakfast with filter coffee. Conley received criticism about why this egg banh mi was prepared that way. And a couple of backpackers who had been to Vietnam had apparently implied that her banh mi wasn't authentic. Or like what they thought banh mi was supposed to taste like. And I remember... It was so damaging to me because I was like, to me, it's the best breakfast. When I'm in Vietnam, I have this with my family. And when I'm here, I have it on the weekends. When people tell me it's not the way it's supposed to do because the reference is this Parisian banh mi, the one in France we find is already Parisian banh mi. It's already Parisian. If you're seeking for authenticity and you're seeking for the flavor of, of Vietnam, you cannot find it in Paris in those places because this is not the taste of Vietnam. It will never be. It's not the taste that it is in my country. 
And I'm not saying I'm the taste of Vietnam. You can never be the taste of the own country. I can never attain that. But still, I'm trying to find a place when I can be in between a Parisian bandmate and someone that I could find in a Vietnamese household. In other words, she's still looking for some form of authenticity here, even if it's not quite the taste you'll find in Vietnam. For what it's worth, I was very upset that this breakfast bun me was no longer on the menu at the hood. I didn't really care about whether it was quote-unquote authentic or not. It was a fantastic sandwich, period. But why was there such backlash? Does authenticity matter when it comes to banh mi's? I want to take you back to Vietnam, where I try to unpack this question. It's dark out in Saigon, and I'm standing at a busy intersection with my guide, Fung. By day, she's a fruit supply chain quality control manager. By night, she gives street food tours of Saigon. We're going to try one of her favorite banh mi shops in the city. Okay, so here we are at the assembly line for the banh mi. We're at a place called Nok Chao, which is named after the owner. She's this tiny woman in her early 50s. One of the first things I noticed when we went to her shop was she had her family huddled in the back, crowded around these buckets. They were preparing homemade pate, a key ingredient of any classic Vietnamese banh mi. That's the pate going on. And then we have some butter. Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. Carrot and cucumber. Cucumber. Cilantro. Cilantro. And instead of using the fresh chilies. Oh, okay. So so spicy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like spice. Chilies. We want chili. Crunchy. Ah, okay. Some soy sauce. Okay. Wow. And I think what makes a big difference is that you have. You can definitely tell that it's all homemade ingredients. And it's the perfect amount of crunchiness, but then you have the softness of the pate and the creaminess, the meatiness. It has everything that you could want in a sandwich. The banh mi at Nok Chao is the perfect example of the classic version of the sandwich. So maybe there's something to these classic ingredients that shed light on its authenticity. I wanted to get a better handle on this, So I reached out to writer Simon Stanley, author of a 10,000-word dissertation on the history of banh mi. Through talking to Simon, it became clear that the banh mi was not just a sandwich that the Vietnamese people made from the provisions of French colonizers, but it was so much more. In 1859, French forces invaded Saigon. Simon picks it up from here. So then, kind of over the course of 30 years... Their little empire grows and grows until they've got Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, and they form the Federation of Indochina in 1887. So by the early 1900s, like Saigon is kind of looking a bit like a European city. You've got the kind of the main avenue, this tree-lined avenue with little cafes and bars, but there's an us and them to any colonization. And Simon says one way to draw that line between us versus them was through food. He says there was even this sort of pseudoscience suggesting that Vietnamese people's stomachs weren't equipped to digest these French foods. So there was a social division that food was very much this line in the sand. And part of the main, a big part of the French diet 
is bread, right? The Vietnamese call this bread bante, which refers to French bread or Western bread. You simply can't grow wheat in Vietnam. It all has to be imported, so it all has to be shipped in probably from France at the time. But then World War I happens. It's a big turning point for Vietnam and for the banh mi. So the two biggest import companies in Vietnam at the time, or in Indochina at the time, were German-owned. So the French authorities seize these and all of the products sitting in their warehouses that are, that are going off. Products like French beer, meats, cheeses, condensed milk, Maggie sauce, or magie sauce, as the French say. And of course, bread. These warehouses packed with all these goodies have been more or less abandoned by the French. So with these warehouses that have closed down, you've suddenly got products like condensed milk and now cheap and being sold to Vietnamese people, they can suddenly afford them. And French words start entering the Vietnamese language. Take phrases like casse-croûte, which literally translates to break crust. But it typically meant a plate of baguette served with ham, cold cuts, pâté, and cheese. So the casse-croûte becomes capcroûte in Vietnamese. French ingredients like butter or beurre becomes bò, like a similar sounding word. This is adopted into the Vietnamese and, and actually gets its own Vietnamese spelling. And as anti-French sentiment grows, the term banté, what the Vietnamese call French bread, gets dropped for banh mi, which literally just means bread. And so basically the banh mi becomes a bit more Vietnamese as well. You start seeing instead of butter, the Vietnamese are using mayonnaise because a bowl of mayonnaise can sit out in the heat a lot better than butter. At this point in time, these French products have become more accessible, and the Vietnamese are starting to put their own spin on things. But then World War II broke out, and there were food shortages again. Japan invaded Indochina and briefly took over from the French, which, strangely enough, emboldened the Vietnamese people. So I think that showed the Vietnamese well, these, these French people are not as maybe strong as we first thought they were. They, we, can, we can topple them. And so I think this rise of nationalism and calls for independence come out of that. This all gives way to the rise of nationalist groups in Vietnam. The most important revolutionary of this new movement is a well-traveled thinker named Ho Chi Minh. Japan, which had occupied parts of Indochina, surrendered to Vietnam in 1945. And it didn't take long after that for Min to declare Vietnam's independence, sparking an uprising. By August 1946, the Viet Minh and France were at war, until 1954. 1954, the Geneva Accords open, they draw a line across Vietnam, and for 300 days, free movement is allowed between the North and the South. And about a million people move from North to South. Including the Lay family who fled from Hanoi to Saigon in 1954. This is the family that turned the banh mi into the sandwich we know today. At the time when they opened the restaurant, banh mi was still seen as a luxury item, sold only in the more chic parts of town. But the Lay family wanted to turn this baguette into a sandwich for the masses. So Mr. Lay shrinks down the baguette to a much smaller stubbier shape, takes out some of the meat, replaces it with vegetables, again making it cheaper, and as a way to use less wheat and less flour, 
puts in an enhancer so that they were using duck eggs at the time. Now they're using chicken eggs. And it's the egg that gave it that big puff so they could have quite a small piece of dough would puff into a very big sandwich. In 1958, the Lay family opened their own storefront. They called it Homa, named after the village they came from, which is now a part of Hanoi. You can still visit Homa today. While they still have the banh mi in its original form, their specialty has become a sort of deconstructed version, with the fillings placed in a skillet with a fried egg and the bread placed on the side. Also, be warned, a visit to Homa must be a breakfast affair. Their hours are from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. But the story doesn't end with Homa. We fast forward to 1975. Saigon falls to the north. It's probably not correct to say falls to the north, but Saigon fell to the north, became communist. And then the story of the Banh Mi really then goes to California, essentially with a lot of the refugees that escaped. Because I think when you're away from home, like that food suddenly becomes a lot more important. It's a way to connect you to your roots. The diaspora spread not just to California and other parts of the United States, but really all over the world. Places like Australia, Germany, Canada, Japan, and France, where Con Lee's family settled in 1990. As I was listening to Simon, it struck me. The banh mi is a sandwich that has always been about innovation. Taking ingredients that never existed in Vietnam before the French came and then turning them into something that had never existed anywhere before. Adapting French words to describe a dish born in Vietnam. So something like Con Lee's fried chicken banh mi can be seen as another way of revolutionizing this sandwich, taking inspiration from her upbringing in Paris and her roots in Vietnam. She's created a fusion of a fusion. Authenticity be damned. While in Vietnam, I tried a bunch of other banh mi places at Con Lee's recommendation. It was hard for her to narrow down the list, but she told me if I could only try one thing, I should stick with something classic, yet all-encompassing. Banh mi tap cam, which means a little bit of everything. Con Lee recommended I check out this store in Hanoi. Really, it's more just a food cart called banh mi pâté. As the name suggests, it's famous for its homemade pâté. It's a husband and wife team that have set up their shop at the corner of this busy intersection. Ooh, okay, so they just put like a fried egg into my sandwich. Pickled veggies here, carrots. I see at least uh, four different kinds of pork, and that's in addition to the pâté, the homemade pâté. That's already in here. Some frizzled onion, crispy onion on top. Chili, chili, yes. Chili, coriander. This is like the perfect snack size. It's smaller than what I ate in Saigon. The pate is a darker color. The bread is maybe a bit fresher, but that could just be because they toast it here right before adding the fillings. Either way, they're both delicious. And includes eggs! So, does authenticity matter when it comes to banh mi's? I think the answer is a resounding no. Banh mi's are a piece of history that tell the story of redemption. 
That is, reclaiming something born out of subjugation and making it your own. And that's exactly what people with Vietnamese heritage are doing around the world. From the Lay family in Saigon to Kong Lee in Paris. Her creations, even the non-traditional banh mi's, are just another way of reinventing a sandwich that is in itself a product of innovation. There's such a thing as an architecture of a sandwich and a construction that makes sense. But there's no such thing as to be respected roles, basically do whatever you want and whatever you feel like it. And it really is up to your flavor profile. So when I hear people telling me, oh, this banh mi should have this, I kind of want to tell them no, because there's no really, there's no real roles. It's food we eat on the street, it's motion food, it's food you eat to move and to go from point A to point B. So it's really food from the people and from the cooks. So really that doesn't belong anywhere, I would say. There's no real rules to what goes into a banh mi, Conley says. Bonjour. Bonjour. Je vais prendre un banh mi poulet frit. There you go. Thank you so much, Pearl. So red. Thanks to Dion Reed and Rebecca Rossman for bringing us today's stories. And for Dion Reed's recipe for pepper steak, just go to americastestkitchen.com. If you like proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickard. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cartarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton. Scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music. Additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis. Is our director of host production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact checking and additional research by Sarah D. Collins. Special thanks to Dr. Jennifer Ho, Chef Craig Wong, Robin Lee, Christina Chin, and Stefan Liu Lim for being the driving forces behind Dion's story. Thanks also to Khan Lee Nguyen, Simon Stanley, and Zap Tan for being a part of Rebecca's story. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Eglin's Best, Plugra Premium Butter, and the Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.